at least, you know, I don't think we'll ever give up trying to do that. No, I mean, that's why we are here and I feel like the community is just getting stronger every day and Absolutely. people speak up, so it, something must change at some point. So welcome to this episode of Finding Your Range podcast with me, Jeannie Devon. And this is the podcast that looks into hypermobility, chronic pain and EDS. And we try and answer all your questions um, with our amazing guests. And today I'm delighted because we've got the lovely Karina Sturm joining us. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her if you don't already know who she is. So um, Karina is a multi, no, I'm reading the wrong one, excuse me. Karina is a multimedia journalist and filmmaker from Germany who lived in the US for seven years. She gained significant scientific knowledge through studying laboratory technology and working in research for several years. Due to a chronic illness and invisible disability, she found her passion for media production and has been working as a freelance journalist since 2013. Um, and I just want to add that in 2019, she finished her master's degree by producing a feature length documentary called We Are Visible, which some of you may actually have watched or have heard of. Um, and the film was to highlight how to improve reporting on people with disabilities in media. We Are Visible has won several movie awards um, while Karina graduated with distinction from her journalism programme. Karina's main focus is to represent people with illnesses and disabilities accurately in the media to reduce biases and stereotypes. And she thinks disabled journalists should be reporting on disability. Amazing. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and you made me sound very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not difficult. You, you know, you've got all these amazing, <laughs> amazing achievements. Um, really, really, I want to hear all about it. So, um, so obviously we mentioned in the bio that you have um, chronic illness and an invisible disability. So what was your personal journey? Um, and you were obviously working in research um, did you have to totally change your job and everything because of this illness? Yes. So yes. that's the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess I should start at the beginning or a little yeah. bit more towards the beginning. Yes. yes so um, it, it, my story basically starts in 2010, um, where I became acutely and very, very ill after a medical treatment that somehow went very wrong. So I got um, injections into my neck and from there I just spiraled downhill like nobody really knows what happened um, and I don't really want to speculate anymore because it's you know it's mm. in the past yes. um, but I basically developed like lots of neurological issues like my neck would start burning like fire and cracking and uh, my body was numb like my hands and my feet and I had motor issues and things like that. Um, which was basically like the, the first symptom of craniocervical instability, mm. but I didn't know that back then. Yes. Um, yeah, so I was bad bound for a couple of months after this treatment. Um, so, I mean, you know, that dozens of doctors, the whole thing. Yeah. Nobody really believed me. 
Um, then I researched myself. I found craniocervical instability to make sense with all my symptoms. So I ordered myself an upright MRI <laughs> because yeah. no doctor would do that. Um, and then I got this diagnosis and it was basically the first diagnosis I had before I even knew that I had EDS. Ah, okay. So you've, you've actually been diagnosed with CCI. Yes. That, that was the first step. That wow. was the first one. Yeah. Wow. And okay. yeah, from there I tried uh, tons of treatments, like specifically physical therapy, uh, different kinds, and also like lots of experimental and alternative things that didn't work at all. Um, and it just it kind of went downhill all the time. Like uh, from one moment to another, another joint would pop out or would hurt. And I just couldn't understand because based on what I knew, it was only my neck that had issues, right? But then yeah. all of a sudden my knees were unstable and my shoulders. And yeah. I just, I didn't know that I they basically did all the wrong treatments. Oh, yeah. yeah, so years and years later... <laughs> I decided there must be something else going on. And since nobody in Germany believed me, um, they basically told me it's all in my head. I mean, you know, all those comments, right? Mm. Um, yes. You're a young woman, so it's just stress, your blood pressure is low, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So at the end, I decided to fly to the United States because I wanted to find answers. And that's where I got diagnosed with EDS four years later. Wow. Gosh, so you had four years of basically trying to get help and not getting anywhere. Yeah. Wow, that's really stressful, isn't it, in itself? And then not feeling well on top of that. It is, yeah. But then, I mean, my journey was kind of fast, right? Because other mm. people spend like decades to find answers. Yes. So oh, yeah. four years is really nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, personally, I mean, mine was 36 years. Um, so, but yeah, we've all, I mean, I'm sure everyone listening can relate to everything because, you know, we've all been on some kind of journey, haven't we, with this diagnosis? Um, so did you then, so you moved to the US then, did you? Um, uh, yeah, a little later then. Yeah. It was kind of coincidental. So first yeah. I went to the US for um, treatments and diagnosis, and then um, I, I had a new boyfriend. <laughs> who happened to study in the US and then, at, you know, later on, yeah. I moved there. <laughs> oh, okay, amazing. Um, what, what, where were you in the US? Uh, well, I started at the East Coast. I spent some time in Chicago and then I moved to the West Coast to San Francisco. Oh, lovely. All great places. <laughs> lovely. Yeah. So, so our, during this journey, then you discovered your passion for media production. Is that right? It's kind of so how did that come about? Well, I think I always had some sort of passion somewhere inside of me, but <laughs> I wasn't really good at school. <laughs> and like, I remember this uh, one teacher who told me that of all the things I could possibly choose, I should never, ever try writing. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, especially not in, in, you know, German, because the subject German was really bad for me. <laughs> but like, to be fair, we always had like super boring assignments and like no creative writing at all. So I'm, I'm not sure mm. if it's 100% my fault. <laughs> and like, I always had better grades in English than in German. <laughs> oh, interesting. So yeah, so did the English study have more creative writing in it then? 
Yeah, I think so. And it was just, yeah. I was, it was more interesting. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, like to go back, so I was like really discouraged to do any sort of creative writing. But what I always did was journaling. Yeah. So I have, um, I think it's four boxes full of journals because I wow. started in fourth grade. <laughs> Wow, and it's it's so funny to just go through all those journals and see you know all the crushes I had since that and all the drama in my teenage years. <laughs> oh. um, so, but journaling was always kind of like my my coping mechanism, and it was mm. you know if you can't talk to your friends or to someone else, you can always talk to your journal. Yeah. So I wrote diary every day. and um when I got sick this became even more important because all of a sudden I didn't have anything else anymore right because I everything went away like I lost my boyfriend my job um I couldn't really talk to my friends anymore because they didn't really understand what Mm -hmm. was happening so I journaled a lot more and then when I realized that there was like no resource in Germany at all, like in in my native language, I started to basically put everything that I used to put in my journal in a blog. Right. (laughs) I started blogging and that's kind of how this developed. And then I studied journalism and from there, just kind of articles and films accidentally. (laughs) That's fantastic. It's great, isn't it? you know, we can turn sort of bad experiences into, you know, what drives us really, our passions. And yeah. I hear that so often. Yeah. yeah. And it's also like, in a way, I mean, I, I always loved my job as a lab technician. It was great. It was my passion too. But I feel like now I've actually arrived where I was always supposed to be. Like I, I love what I'm doing right now so much more than everything mm. before. Yeah. So in a way, even though I don't want to be sick, I don't want to have EDS, but it also has some like good sides. And yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, I'm so great, you know, through me having EDS and what, you know, I get to meet people like you and all these wonderful <laughs> people in the community that I would never have met. Um, if I hadn't been on this journey so I have I really am grateful for many aspects of having having this condition Um, yeah me too it's opened up a whole new world for me so lovely and so you use this passion now to spread awareness and you do your advocacy work so what does motivate you now so why are you doing this (laughs) that's I I thought about this question so much but like (laughs) very honestly at the beginning I think it was just pure desperation (laughs) yeah because there just like was no resource in my native language and I'm I don't like to complain about things that I'm equipped to change myself so you know Mm -hmm. if there is something missing I feel like it's my responsibility to like not complain but do something about it like Like, at least if I can I I, I can change everything but yeah. I could do a blog, right? So yeah. I did. <laughs> yes. So that was, I think, what drove me in the beginning. And then over time, it was basically the community because I just kind of reacted to what they shared with me, yeah. what was needed. Yes. So then it kind of became necessity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very nice. Really lovely. And um, so let's talk about your film, which I, <laughs> I have watched. Um, uh, so We Are Visible. Um, 
you know, I watched it, I think, before it came out because you, you sent me a preview mm-hmm. of it. And um, oh, I remember, actually, I was having a flare up that weekend when you sent. So I was in bed and I watched it. And um, oh, it just it was it was just wonderful. It was a real um, it was inspiring, but it was also heartbreaking I won't give anything away but obviously there's some very sad bits in there mm-hmm. um but you know uh it was, it's just a real real triumph so congratulations on that film thank um, you so if anyone listening hasn't watched it we'll talk about that later but I highly recommend that you do watch it um so tell us you know what were you hoping to achieve with this film and and how did you sort of how did you make it and what were you hoping to achieve with it <laughs> well, how did I make it? It's kind of easy. I bought a camera and started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I thought that as I said that. Yeah, it's, it's obvious. I had a camera and yeah. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. No, it, it actually wasn't that simple because, like, I've, I've never filmed before. So, it, okay. I mean, for me, it was really like buying a camera and just pushing the button and hoping that something wow. nice happens. So, you've never filmed before? No, I had no idea what, what I was doing. Wow. So that that just astounds me even more, because having watched <laughs> that film, you'd think this was like your fifth, sixth film or something. Oh, I wish. No. <laughs> wow. Oh, there you go. Gosh. Okay. Amazing. That is amazing. Right. Okay. So you were totally new to it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it was just really like I started studying. Then um, <laughs> I always pre-plan everything. So I was reading what I had to do for my master's thesis at the end of my program, right? Yeah. Um, And they said, okay, this could be like a multimedia project or you could do whatever um, and shoot a documentary. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I I like challenges. I like learning new skills. And I figured, okay, if I do a documentary, I mean, the only subject that makes sense to me is EDS. Mm. And that's kind of how it started. And then... I knew that it should be a short documentary, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But then how do you tell EDS in 10 minutes? It's kind of impossible. Yes. So I just decided to do this feature length film and I had absolutely no idea what I was getting myself (laughs) into. Like how how hard could it be to film a couple of people and kind of put this together? (laughs) Yeah, it turned out to be a little harder. Yes. You had lots of different people, didn't you? How many people in total were part of the film? Uh, including me, I think seven f- families or yeah, like, it was uh, six countries. Yeah, yeah, six countries. Yeah, wow. gosh, okay, so that is a lot of organizing, isn't it? It was, and that was, I think, even the hardest part and paying for it, <laughs> yeah, but like just trying to to organize all the different people and the activities we wanted to shoot, including or considering that I'm chronically ill and they are all chronically ill. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, nothing really worked out the way we planned it, but in the end it was okay anyways. But it's just like, I I could have saved a lot of time if I just didn't plan anything. (laughs) Like, (laughs) let's just go there and film whatever I see. See what happens. Yeah. God, so... So you had to travel around all the different countries then? Um, yes. Yeah. So that's quite tiring for you as well. It, it was very exhausting, especially mm-hmm. because it had a very tight timeline because there was a like a fixed deadline where this had to be handed in. 
And so that was like really stressful. And then on top of it, I needed a lot of time in between to rest because, you know, like even if I just shot for like two hours a day or so, it was so exhausting for me that I was mm. in pain for the next, I don't know, week or so. Yeah. So there yeah. was like lots of filming, resting, filming, resting. <laughs> and you yeah. had to plan all this. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Yes. But, you know, when I watched the film, I, I remember thinking it was so good because it was really showing the reality of what it's like to live with this condition and in lots of different countries as well. So, you do, you know, um, and so I, you know, spreading that awareness because people don't know the reality, do they? They just no. don't know the daily challenges that some people we all have to go through to some degree. Um, is that what you were hoping to achieve with this film, just to raise that awareness? Yes, but also like I wanted people to feel validated and mm. to kind of relate to someone else and to see that they are not alone. And I was also kind of hoping that because people in the community know what it's like to live with EDS, right? So yeah. that's not too hard. But then all the people from the outside world, like our doctors, our families, mm. everyone that's around us and tries to support us, but they don't really know how it feels to live with EDS. I was kind of hoping they get at least like a glimpse of, you know, that's our life and yes. that's how you, or what you can do to help. Yes. And um, how, did you have many doctors and medical professionals watching it and no? I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, we did some screenings like um, with Johns Hopkins, for example. Mm. Um, so mm -hmm. there were some medical professionals, but overall I feel like, um, most people that watched it had EDS themselves and they just kind of needed this to feel seen, yes. which is great as well. I'm just still hoping, you know, because there is so much also medical knowledge in the film and yeah. the interviews that yes. medical professionals maybe could use this to, to learn something. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so we talked about the obstacles and, and the challenges. So the traveling and, and working with people <laughs> who had obviously chronic illness as well. Um, were those the main sort of difficulties you had with the filming? And I mean, it was like the, the physical uh, pain, and, but also like a, some sort of emotional pain because like for me, it was really, really tough to see, um, especially the children with EDS and like, yeah seeing a child in pain is, is just incredibly emotionally painful and I'm I still to this day don't really quite understand how these kids can be so strong because I mean I got sick when I was an adult right so that's different um, but if you're a child and you you don't fully understand what's happening but you still have all these issues and sometimes like they sometimes had had more pain or more issues than I had, and that was that was like really painful to see. Yeah, yeah, very very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, we mentioned it, or you mentioned it earlier. Um, obviously, when you were going on your journey trying to get diagnosis, and it took you know many years. Are you happy to talk about sort of that medical gaslighting that you went through? Because I know obviously there are many people who do. Um, have that experience what was that like well it was horrible <laughs> I mean obviously I would say um, especially during the time where I was searching for a diagnosis these four years I was probably gaslighted for like 90% of the time 
And it's like a lot of the time it had to do with me looking like a young, healthy woman, especially the whole gender thing was a big issue (laughs) because it's like, you're a woman, you must be exaggerating, you must be hysterical, all these, you know, typical stereotypes and the gender bias was huge. I didn't really know back then because I had no experience with that, but I do know now. And it's also like, when I think back, um, this has caused me like something similar to PTSD, I would say. Right. Like it took me years to see a doctor without just starting to sweat everywhere and, and feeling anxious and immediately going into some sort of like a defensive mode because yeah. I was feeling like they're coming at me. They must be attacking me. They want yes. to harm me because I couldn't just trust that anyone wanted something good for me <laughs> so that was really tough and it's like still I mean I'm, I'm I'm seeing a therapist to work through all the trauma I have experienced in the past which is like if you think about that that yeah. medical appointments can cause you this much pain and trauma it's it's horrible yeah. like this yeah. shouldn't be allowed to happen no 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 exactly there's something very wrong isn't there yeah that people are ending up with medical PTSD and then something is, is broken there, isn't there? To, for that to be going on. Oh, I'm really sorry that you went through that. Um, And as I said, I'm sorry because I know you probably went through the same thing and like pretty much everyone else of us as well. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you just feel the worst thing about it is you feel so powerless and you go, you go with, initially, you go to the appointments with hope that someone's yeah. going to suddenly tell you what's wrong. And then, you know, oh, the amount of times I was just in tears in a doctor's yeah. surgery. And then they t- ask me if I'm depressed and do I want antidepressants or yeah. do I need to see a counsellor? And it's like, well, no, I just want to be heard. You know, yeah. you're, not li- you're not listening to me. Um, yeah. Very yeah. difficult, very difficult. Well, and then you start to to doubt yourself. And like at some point I thought, maybe I'm the problem. Like maybe there really is something wrong with me. Like mm. if all of them think I'm just imagining this, maybe they are right. Um, but then luckily for me, I'm very stubborn. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. I, I do feel like there is a bigger issue and there is yeah. something wrong physically with me. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We do have to be resilient, don't we? And like you say, taking control if we can, you know, organizing the MRI, going, looking for help, um, you know, just not accepting things when you think, you know, you truly know yourself and you think that something is wrong. You know, don't accept that someone just says, you know, it's all in your head. And I can't believe we're still having these discussions today, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? But yes. Okay. So what would you say is your hope then for the future? Hopefully (laughs) getting rid of medical gaslighting. What what can we hope for for the future for people living with a chronic illness? Well, so for EDS specifically, I would hope that at some point um, we have experts for all the comorbid conditions in every country, because right now, especially if I talk about Germany, we don't, I mean, we have single experts for some of the conditions, but for example, people still have to go out of country and pay for surgery out of pocket, which is impossible. I mean, 
thousands wow. of thousands of dollars, for example. So yes. that would be my first hope that at some point we can get the care we need where we live, no matter where that may be, yes. which is a big hope and probably a little unrealistic, I guess. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that would be wonderful. It would. Yeah. yeah. And it would be nice if like at least every doctor would have heard of EDS once so you know if they see someone with eds it doesn't take us decades to find a diagnosis so that would be nice and then for chronic illness overall i think i just and that's a big one too (laughs) i hope that everyone has the access to the care they need no matter you know their background their ethnicity their gender their sexual orientation and so on because everybody deserves to be treated um, but well, as I said, that's probably very wow. unlikely to happen soon as well. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's that's why. Hope. Yes, and that's why you know work that you do, and you know that everyone in the community does to keep trying to wear awareness, raise awareness is so important, right? You know, yeah. At least you know I don't think we'll ever give up trying to do that. No, I mean, that's why we are here. And I feel like the community is just getting stronger every day and Absolutely. people speak up. So it, something yeah. must change at some point. Yes. Yeah. You know, I always, I mean, I might be being very simplistic here, but I always struggle to understand why people don't recognize EDS, doctors, I mean. Because mm. if someone comes with, you know, a, a whole list of diff- symptoms and, you know, they've got the pain and they've got all the, say, gastro and, um, you know, headaches and, and, you know, you can see in their skin and when you touch them and, and they're hypermobile. And, and I just don't understand. It doesn't seem that difficult to me to kind of go, oh, <laughs> that seems to be lots of different things. I don't know. I, I just, it just seems very simple to me. I don't know why it's so difficult for people to say, oh, have you ever considered a connective tissue disorder? I guess it's because, um, and I don't want to talk bad about all the doctors, because as we both know, there are great ones out there as well. But like a lot of doctors have this image of someone who is sick and disabled as someone who is like basically half dying, lying in bed, sad, staring, you know, at the wall or whatever. They don't like if they see you as like a healthy looking young woman, they, they don't expect sickness especially not something as severe as eds and -hmm. like when i went to the doctor a couple of weeks ago um he was like oh i read your 40 pages summary of your conditions and now you're sitting right in front of me and this is not what i expected oh wow (laughs) and i was like yeah i know because i have like 20 diagnoses and some really severe ones like even life-threatening sometimes and i i just don't look like it because they don't expect me to look like this so yes wow at least he was honest right i mean that's he was (laughs) it was actually very nice (laughs) yeah and that probably goes through everyone's mind right when someone walks in their room and they're like oh you know this person looks okay yeah he probably expected someone like very old um very Mm. fragile and Mm. yeah (laughs) i was sitting there smiling through my face mask and we're like hey (laughs) good to see you (laughs) yeah yeah the whole perception thing has to change doesn't it Um, yeah yeah okay so what advice could you give to our listeners 
about living with EDS or another chronic condition? Any top tips or guidance? <laughs> That's always one of my favorite questions because like, <laughs> I'm, I'm really the worst person at giving advice because I don't really <laughs> follow my own advice. <laughs> um, so uh, I think the most important advice I could give is that people should stop fighting themselves and accepting their new life as a chronically ill person. And like, I'm not saying stop fighting for better treatments or for sure. improving your quality of life. Just like I was fighting so hard to kind of get my old life back, like my pre-illness life. And I hurt myself so badly doing this. Yes. Um, and when I got to the point of accepting my condition, everything just immediately got better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's totally, totally agree with that. That was a piece of advice, a, a client who, um, who had EDS before I knew I had EDS and so we became friends and it was the first she said to me because I was like you mm. I was like well why can't I do this why can't I why am I always yeah. getting tired and she said you have to accept it because you're still fighting yeah. um, and she was right you know when you do like you say it's not that we stop fighting for treatment or being heard but accepting in ourselves yeah. actually we have to adapt we have to change maybe how we do things um, yeah, but that's so hard. I mean, oh, yeah. I, really? I, I heard the same thing as well from a friend. And, and it was like, I think it was ill for like six months or so. And it was just way too early to hear that because it was like, I'm not accepting this. Like, this is <laughs> not how my life is supposed to be. Like, yeah. there is a huge process in between where you basically grieve your old life and you yeah. grieve everything you've lost and then you start to rebuild. So it's not not as simple as just accepting this no, absolutely <laughs> yeah I mean I'm, yeah. I'm not saying it's easy I'm just saying it it gets easier once you're at the point of accepting and kind of starting to rebuild a new life yeah yeah you're absolutely right it is a process isn't it yeah you know you, there is that going through that period of loss and grief um, yeah. I hear that a lot from from people who come to see me that they Exactly. You know, they're, they're grieving their previous life. And, and the worst thing is for many people is that the symptoms can come on almost suddenly. Yeah. Some people, some people are asymptomatic. They're doing, you know, living their life and all of a sudden they have a virus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have like a surgery. Yeah. yeah. And literally someone switches the light mm. and your whole life is just changes overnight. And it's like, how can that happen? Yeah. How does that even happen? And that's one of the hardest things with this, I think. Yep. Um, yeah. And how yeah. can you not get back to, like, you were just a healthy person and in a matter of, like, a minute, you become chronically ill and there is no yeah. way back. And it's so hard to kind of wrap your head around that fact that this is not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is a case then of, like you say, yeah, adapting we need to adapt we need to make changes to our yeah. lifestyle maybe um and then yeah going through that process and then finally getting to acceptance and yeah. and then yeah yeah that's also kind of like a my second advice that kind of goes along with this acceptance is that you need to find a new purpose like something that fulfills you Mm -hmm. Because like losing pretty much everything that defines you. I mean, in my case, this was like my job. And then I did lots of sports competitions. And then all of a sudden, this all was gone. And I was like, what am I even good at? Like, who am I? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I yeah, felt yeah. so lost and kind of worthless. 
And like, I'm not saying you should define your worth over, you know, achievements or whatever, yeah. but you do need something that kind of fulfills you and makes you feel useful. At least that's yeah. me. So. Yeah. And I think that's probably why so many people end up turning their illness into, you know, turning it into for the force for good, you know, for yeah. the greater good, yeah. um, like, the, like the work you do. Um, it's, yeah. And it's coming really from, from the heart, isn't it? It's, um, and, you know, that means a lot. So, yeah. 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 It makes you feel like you're doing something that's really helping and yes. that's kind of leaving behind footsteps and all this. And I did not feel that way when I was working in a lab, you know what I mean? Like it was important in a different way, but it, mm. it didn't mean the same thing to yeah. me because this, changes yeah. things for people that have the same issues as I have so yeah I can totally relate to that you know <laughs> I know because you're doing the same thing <laughs> yeah but I you know I totally you know I just um yeah I can't put it into words but it just means everything yeah. to me the work that I do and it, no matter how small if I could give someone a small piece of information or a little helping hand along the way then that's brilliant you know um yeah i know that because i've seen your exercise program and all the work <laughs> you put into your videos so it's very obvious oh. how much this matters to you yeah i mean i i just live and breathe it so um like you know like you do with your work like so many people do um it, yeah so fantastic um so well, how can people, can they watch the film still? How can they find out more about your work? Or what's your blog? We need to know what your blog is. <laughs> well, so the film is still on Vimeo On Demand. Um, it's called Via Visible, so you can stream it there. Mm -hmm. um, and you can find all of my work. Um, I have a like a journalistic portfolio website. Um, that's karina-sturm.com. Mm -hmm. um, and that's linked to like the film and to all my articles and everything I do yeah. and uh, otherwise I'm basically on all your preferred social media platforms not TikTok because I'm way too old for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah me too I'm, I'm not going on TikTok either no I think <laughs> I'm just no <laughs> but you I can think... find me on Facebook Insta and Twitter and also yeah. LinkedIn yeah perfect so Facebook Twitter Instagram, LinkedIn, um, and those, that's just your name. Yeah. If they yeah. search your name. Yeah. Perfect. That should work. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. That's brilliant. Um, so as I said, I highly recommend watching We Are Visible if you haven't already seen it. Um, it's, yeah, it's really wonderful. Really wonderful. Thank oh. you. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us today and answering all our questions. Um, <laughs> and really nice to, to connect with you sort of um face to face as it were not that we've not met in real per real life yet <laughs> maybe one day we will it would be great yeah that would be awesome and thanks for inviting me I really had fun <laughs> oh thank you and uh thank you to our listeners um for listening and watching um this episode with Karina I hope you enjoyed it if you have any questions um either get in touch directly with Karina on social media or via her website or you can leave comments down below and um, I will make sure she gets them as well. So thank you again. And until next time, keep moving. <laughs>